0: Everyone enjoys a little mystery, and on One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a class ring that disappeared on one continent and reappeared on another. And a man in Maine whose vision was restored by a lightning strike. And then there's the house in Atlanta that dripped human blood. And those are just the start. Subscribe to One Strange Thing now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. There's an old Latin saying that is loosely translated. A pleasant companion on a journey is as good as a carriage. And ain't that the truth? Load a wheelbarrow with 100 pounds of earth and push it up a rutted dirt path in the hot summer sun, and you'll soon discover it's hard work. Add a second person to the mix, maybe to help with the job, or maybe just to keep you company, and suddenly the task is less daunting. Like a good carriage, companionship can carry you along and make the journey easier to endure. what everyone wants, right? That lifelong pleasant companion who is always in our corner and lightens our load in dark times. It's what Tracy Jane Islam wanted. After nearly two decades though, she was no longer finding her perfect companion in her husband, Dr. Azizul Islam, a biochemist born in Bangladesh. The pair met in London where he held a doctorate in biochemistry from the University of London. And they later moved to the Detroit area, settling in Plymouth, Michigan, where he became vice president of an electroplating company. The pair raised two children, but by 1999, their union was on the rocks. Tracy had been feeling unfulfilled and trapped in a loveless marriage. In August of 1999, Tracy made the incredibly difficult decision to leave her children in Michigan and go back to England to live with her sister, Anita. Who had been her primary confidante. Anyone in the position where Tracy found herself will tell you it is terrifying to face the world alone, without any possessions, without even your children. Tracy did it, though. She stood tall when she needed to be strong, and she put herself first. She was brave, and she knew any chance she had to free herself and her children from the tyranny of Azizel started with this first step. Soon, she was feeling more optimistic. She talked to her children on the phone often, and by September, she'd met another man. Over the next eight weeks, Tracy began to negotiate a long-distance divorce from Azizel. As Christmas approached, Tracy made plans to travel back to Detroit to see her children, teenagers Joseph and Anna, who she hadn't seen in four months, and to finalize divorce plans from Azizel. Her husband reportedly had other ideas. He wanted the couple to reconcile. He wanted Tracy back in his home. And then, Tracy Islam vanished. The Detroit Free Press reported Tracy's boyfriend in London called police in Michigan on December twentieth, 1999, after he was unable to reach her. Also, a Detroit-area friend who had scheduled a dinner engagement with Tracy that night reported that she hadn't heard from her either. Police paid a visit to the Islam home on Rose Street and spoke with him. Earlier that morning, Azizel had told his children that their mother left and he didn't know where she was. When questioned, he told police the same thing. She left early this morning when I went to run errands, and when I returned, she was gone. I don't know where she went. The police found willing witnesses in Tracy's boyfriend and sister, though, and the accounts they were about to give were damning. On December 18th, she called her boyfriend in London and told him she was afraid her husband would try to poison her. The next day, December 19th, Tracy spoke with her sister and reiterated her fear that Azizel was going to poison her. Imagine how frightening that must be. The man was a renowned biochemist. He must have known a hundred ways to poison someone. How do you protect yourself in this situation? You wonder, did Tracy resort to consuming only food and drink she prepared herself? Did she refuse food and drinks offered to her by her estranged husband? Police learned there had been a domestic incident of sorts on the 19th when Azizel overheard, or eavesdropped on, a phone conversation between Tracy and her boyfriend in London. The boyfriend told investigators that Tracy's husband interrupted their conversation, directed a litany of profanities at him, and then abruptly ended the call. I miss you and I love you, she reportedly said to her boyfriend, and it was the last thing she was known to have said to anyone outside of her home, because no one heard from Tracy after that. Now a missing person, authorities went public with a description of Tracy and asked for calls from anyone with information. Tracy was described as 35 years old, 5 foot 3 inches tall, average build with bleached blonde hair, brown eyes, and a nose ring. It was still early in the investigation and putting out the description demonstrated that investigators were keeping all of their avenues open. But they were already developing very strong suspicions about what had become of Tracy Islam. Just two days later, on December 22nd, an employee of the a and restaurant in Dearborn, which is located about 20 miles from the Islam's home in Plymouth, noticed something odd. There were several dumpsters outside the restaurant. One dumpster was for ordinary garbage, and the other dumpster was for grease only. Like many fast-food restaurants, the A&W recycled the used oil from their vats and fryers. Except, the grease dumpster had bags in it. There should not be any bagged trash in the grease vat. So an employee tore into one of the bags and was confronted with a horror that is likely etched into their memory forever. The bags contained two human arms severed at the elbows and two human legs severed above the knees. All ten fingertips were missing from the hands. On Christmas Eve, the Petoskey News Review reported, Police are no closer Thursday to uncovering the identity of a woman whose body parts were found in a trash bin behind a restaurant. Dearborn police found the body parts Wednesday evening in a dumpster behind an A&W restaurant near Fairlane Mall. Dearborn Police Chief Ron Haddad offered more detail on the search that followed. Police took the bags to the Wayne County Morgue and searched the area where the bags were found, as well as several other dumpsters in the area. He said they found nothing that would help identify the body. In less delicate terms, the police are looking for the rest of the body that the arms and legs belong to, but they did not find it. Listeners, we have a dismembered corpse just in time for the holiday season. On December 23, 1999, Azizel Islam rented a minivan for the day. He would later say that he got the van to transport visiting family from the airport to his home. When Christmas had come and gone, most people were thinking only about one thing. The new millennium was a week away. We were about to celebrate an event we wouldn't see again for a thousand years. But for investigators, and for Tracy's friends and family, there was no celebration, because Christmas Day brought a new ominous development. Tracy's visit from London had only been scheduled to last until Christmas Eve. Her ticket on a return flight the previous day had gone unused. Now, it was 1999, and the technology of DNA at the time was slow and downright primitive compared to today investigators were not able to immediately identify the owner of the legs found in the grease vat behind the Dearborn A&W. Nevertheless, investigators noted a similarity of the body parts found to the description of missing person Tracy Islam. It's on New Year's Eve, 1999, that a human torso was found near Wallbridge Road in Allen Township, Ohio. Allen Township is located just outside of Toledo. This is about an hour's drive away from the Islam home in Plymouth. The torso was found in a field wrapped in multiple layers of plastic bags and tied tightly with rope. The limbs had been severed from the torso and the head was removed. The Port Clinton News-Herald reported, Authorities said a woman's torso was found in Ellen Township in Ottawa County on December 31st after a property owner checked the contents of a suspicious bag that had been in the field more than a week. A preliminary investigation showed the torso matched the arms and legs found behind the Dearborn ANW, both in anatomy and through gray paint residue that was found on both sets of remains. Without a conclusive identification of the remains as those of Tracy, however, investigators did not have enough to get a search warrant of the Islam home. But to everyone's surprise, on January 4, 2000, Islam voluntarily allowed officers into his home for a look around and a friendly chat. The Detroit Free Press wrote, The case got a break on January 4th when Dearborn Police Sergeant Mark Jabour went to Islam's Row Street residence to question the couple's two children, Anna and Joseph. Jabour said he got Tracy Islam's toothbrush from Anna and DNA experts went to work. In the basement of the home, investigators noticed a freshly painted concrete floor, but the work was haphazard. There were paint cans and a roller still sitting nearby. Islam claimed he was just putting down a fresh coat as he prepared to put the home on the market. Investigators suspected he was covering something up, and that something was the blood of his wife, Tracy. On January 7th, with DNA profiles of Tracy Islam and her children in hand, Investigators returned to the Islam home, and again, Azizel allowed them into the home voluntarily. This time, investigators brought reinforcements. And these reinforcements included a dog named Eagle. He was an eight-year-old Doberman-German shorthair mix and undoubtedly a very good boy. Eagle was trained to detect the scent of human blood, and by all appearances, he was very, very good at it. By the time investigators enlisted his help in the search of the home, Eagle had already been making a name for himself in law enforcement circles. He and his handler, Sandra Anderson, were discovering human remains with shocking regularity, even in cases where investigators believed they had exhausted all possibilities and found nothing. In this case, Eagle came through again. The Detroit Free Press wrote, Once inside, Eagle bolted downstairs to the basement, lying down and barking next to a wet paint roller and paint cans. Plymouth Police Lieutenant Wayne Carroll expressed his considerable amazement. Before we brought that dog down there, we were on thin ice. We could tell the basement floor had just been painted and it looked like a rush job, but we couldn't see any blood. As far as the case against Azizel Islam was concerned, it was enough. Eagle indicated there was blood in the paint pan and several locations around the basement. Forensic investigators processed the scene and took samples from areas where Eagle alerted. They even found a broken hacksaw blade, which still had traces of blood on it. The problem is, the blood on the blade did not belong to Tracy Islam. It belonged to someone else. But based on the dog alerting and the bloodied blade, police obtained an arrest warrant the same day and Azizel was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. And listeners, it doesn't sound like Islam took his arrest very well. He lost his composure and started running his mouth. Plymouth Police Lieutenant Wayne Carroll would later testify Islam was crying in his jail cell that night and said, don't look at me, I'm a criminal. Carol said they told Islam to remain silent, but he waived his rights and bizarrely claimed that he hired some people to harm Tracy, but he did not want her killed. Azizel Islam will tell elaborate lies and weave fantastic conspiracies to deflect blame and deny guilt, but he was embarrassing himself. Detectives had already spoken to several people and knew much more than they were letting on. Azizel Islam was arraigned and all the damning evidence investigators had gathered was about to come to light. You see, detectives had spoken to his neighbors, including a guy named Jerry Ashley. The Free Press wrote, Ashley testified that he met Azizel Islam for the first and only time on December 23rd, when Islam knocked on his door about 11 a.m. and asked him to lift a heavy plastic garbage can into the back of a minivan. Listeners, Imagine this. You've never met your neighbor before, and he just comes over to the door at 11 a.m. and asks you to do this somewhat odd tasks for him. Hey, neighbor, can you help me lift this can? No, no, don't look inside. Just, I need to get it in the back of the van. But Ashley was an agreeable sort, and he offered to help. He later told investigators the can weighed at least 100 pounds. He also noted the back seat and floor of the white van were covered with a plastic sheet. After digging further, detectives confirmed that Islam rented a white van on December 23rd. And how did he think he was going to get away with this? Involving a third party in your murder cover-up is not a smart move. They had witnesses in Michigan that condemned Islam's defense to failure, but he'd been seen in Ohio near the site where the torso was found. The Free Press wrote, Several witnesses from Ohio testified, that they saw a well dressed man fitting Islam's description traipsing through a muddy field near a parked white minivan. The Ohio site where witnesses saw this man matching Islam's description was near the spot where the torso was later found. He made a round trip to dump Tracy's body, then meticulously cleaned, refueled, and returned to the van, and this could easily have been done within the 213 miles he put on the odometer that day. Far too many miles to have used the van just to pick up relatives at the airport, which is what he told the rental agent when he got the van. Islam's defense attorney argued on January 10th during the initial arraignment that prosecutors couldn't even prove that Tracy Islam was dead. And at the time, he was right. But that evidence would come. They would eventually prove the remains were Tracy's. It didn't stop his attorney, Michael Schwartz, from protesting enthusiastically he characterized the state's case as very, very thin and said they're going to have a hard time. But in the end, it was all bluster. The case against Islam turned out to be extremely convincing. On October 3, 2000, after four hours of deliberation over two days, Azizel Islam was found guilty by a Wayne County jury for the first-degree murder of Tracy Islam. Three weeks later, Islam's sentence was handed down, and the Detroit Free Press spelled it out with a simple headline, Spurned Husband Gets Life in Prison for Killing Wife. Islam was going to prison, and he would never get out. That should be the end of the story, right? The bad guy is identified, apprehended, tried, and sent off to prison. It would be great if the story ended there. Bad guy's in prison, no chance of getting out. But listeners, that's not the end. There was a complication, a serious issue with the evidence in this case. If the worst case scenario came to pass, Azizel Islam could become a free man. And listeners, we'll be right back. I owe you an apology because I engaged in a little unintentional misdirection earlier when we talked about Sandra Anderson and her good boy, Eagle. You may be under the impression that Eagle's title of cadaver dog makes him official. Dogs used by law enforcement agencies often come from a loosely regulated industry with shoestring resources and a reliance on volunteers. Dog handlers typically pay for their own training and commonly perform their services for free, with local police departments paying for their fuel and lodging. Now, There are also dogs that are part of the department itself, police dogs, but we're not talking about police dogs today. These outside dog teams are an incredibly valuable resource, and one that we appreciate greatly. But dog handlers for organizations like these do not always go through the same rigorous training that police dogs do. Their handlers do not get the same ethics training that police officers do. Sometimes you have a cop wannabe in that role unaccustomed to praise and wanting more of it. Throw in some TV cameras and newspaper reporters, and the dog's handler may suddenly find that they enjoy the attention. This brings us rather unexpectedly to the case of missing person Sherita Thomas. Sergeant Alan McGregor from Oscoda, Michigan, worked alongside an FBI agent on the 1980 disappearance of Sherita Thomas when they recruited Sandra Anderson and her dog Eagle to assist in the search. According to a story in the Free Press from 2003, the Sherita Thomas story had haunted Uskoda since 1980. Thomas was a black woman and young mother living in a mostly white conservative town. She was on her way to pick up her baby daughter from the sitter when she vanished, barely a mile from the police station. Local police brought in the FBI when her disappearance was deemed a hate crime. Now, McGregor had taken on the case as an ongoing job that he came back to, as time permitted. So, when they got a tip about a location in the Huron National Forest as a potential burial location for Sherita, they wanted a cadaver-sniffing dog to go over the site. And listeners, just as an aside, I have not covered the disappearance of Sherita Thomas. If you are interested in her story or would like to learn more, my friend Robin at The Trail Went Cold covered her disappearance in episode 182. So, in March, Sandra Anderson and Eagle visited the location. From People Magazine 2003, Anderson found a bone there almost immediately, but Officer Mark David recalled wondering why it smelled like chlorine bleach. No one could explain that, said David. But he didn't voice his concerns until a later visit. Twice after that, David and two other investigators thoroughly searched an area, he recalled. Anderson suddenly and inexplicably located skeletal remains. The Detroit Free Press detailed the account of community officer Mark David. Quote, Anderson insisted on going back down to the creek, David recalled. He said he had just returned from the creek where he had been sifting through muck on his hands and knees. He'd found nothing so he decided to follow Anderson to the stream. Sandra Anderson crouched near the water. David said he saw her put one hand back behind her foot. Did she pull something out of her boot? It happened so fast. Moments later, she basically directed Mark to make a discovery. He recalled her saying, Check by my foot. So David searched the muddy water with his hands. He was shocked to feel a hard nugget. It was a knuckle bone. He was sure this bone had not been there minutes earlier. That night, he was sleepless. And the next day, a young crime scene tech pulled him aside with a question. Mark, she said quietly. Do you think we missed anything over here? He said there was no way. He said that she responded, Sandra says we missed this. In her hand, the technician held a two-inch long strip of carpet. David and the young technician agreed they would keep an eye on Sandra. The search for Sherita Thomas came to a head that afternoon with a confrontation. Anderson and the young lab technician were searching the creek together when the two women started shouting at each other and tugging on the same bone. The technician accused Anderson of pulling the bone out of her boot. It was now or never, David thought. He told Detective McGregor and Chief LeVac what he believed he had seen earlier. Now, these accusations made by Mark David and the technician are not a small matter. Accusations like these are not taken lightly because of the potential implications. Sandra Anderson's arrest created a shockwave in the law and order community. Anderson was considered the best of the best. Adela Morris, founder of the Institute for Canine Research near San Francisco, told the Associated Press she was widely known she touted herself as having the perfect dog. D. Wilde of the National Association of Search and Rescue told People magazine in 2003, this throws everything she's ever done into question. And now, I don't want you to think that I'm piling on Sandra Anderson and Eagle. I want to be clear. They did their job well on many occasions. Eagle had a good nose, and cases were solved because of him. Anderson helped locate Native American burial sites and find victims' remains at the World Trade Center after 9-11. However, when we look at the Islam home, where her dog Eagle alerted and a bloody hacksaw blade was recovered, listeners, the blood on the blade belonged to Sandra, not Tracy. Now, these are serious accusations, and they do not show Sandra Anderson in a positive light. According to the Associated Press, in one instance from Fulton County, Ohio, a deputy sheriff wondered why the human toe that Anderson claimed Eagle had discovered in a creek bed had been so neatly severed. Shortly afterward, the body of the 22-year-old man police were seeking was found. He still had his boots on, and he still had all 10 toes. The toe was later discovered to have come from the Shreveport Fire Department. The report alleged Anderson had gone further than planting bones. Not only did she plant bones in search areas, she also used her own body fluids to stain a saw blade, coins, and a piece of cloth. Sandra Anderson's career was in ruins, but a lot more stood vulnerable. If, by her own count, Sandra Anderson claimed to have been involved in more than a thousand searches, If she was planting evidence, a lot of cases stood to be scrutinized, including the conviction of Azizel Islam. But all right, we have to ask ourselves, why would you plant evidence? For many, the allegation that a law enforcement officer, or someone who fancies themselves a law enforcement officer, would plant evidence is almost too much to believe. To frame an innocent person, I just can't believe it. The sentiment is admirable, but it misses the target. Historically, in investigations of dirty cops who planted evidence, the vast majority of them did it to incriminate suspects that they already thought were guilty. If a conviction looks questionable, you just plant some evidence and make the case. Remember what Plymouth Commander Wayne Carroll said? Before we brought the dog down there, we were on thin ice. Now, I want to be clear, I am not excusing the actions of investigators who plant evidence. That is wrong, it's inappropriate, it should never happen, and those who indulge in it should lose their livelihoods. But if you're having trouble believing that someone would do that, you have to understand they plant the evidence thinking they're doing the right thing. They act with the deeply misguided belief that their intentions are noble. So knowing what we know about Sandra Anderson and her dog Eagle. In 2004, the Circuit Court decided to grant Islam a new trial because of the misconduct of Sandra Anderson. Remember, the hacksaw blade found in the basement was planted by Anderson. It did not have Tracy Islam's blood or the blood of her children on it. It was Anderson's blood on the blade, and Anderson's blood did not belong in the Islam house unless she planted it there during the search. Things are not looking good, and worst case scenario Islam could go free. In 2007, the appellate court upheld Islam's conviction. The state of Michigan ruled the case against Islam had been strong and that the weight of the evidence from the potentially tainted hacksaw blade was not the primary reason Islam was convicted. The rest of the evidence they ruled, coordinated via a timeline with witnesses and other physical evidence, was more than sufficient to have convicted him. It was a close call, but in the end, justice was served. Azizel Islam was a bad man, a man who robbed his children of their mother and for what, control, his own ego? He was a renowned biochemist who bullied his wife to the degree that she would choose to leave without her children. And when she rebuffed his attempt, his demand, for reconciliation, he brutally murdered her, dismembered her in the basement, and discarded her body like it was garbage. He thought he was smart enough to get away with it. Fortunately, he was wrong. Investigators revealed Islam was too short to reach the trash dumpsters that cold December night in 1999. From the Detroit Free Press Had Islam dumped the arms and legs in the regular trash bin, they probably would not have been found and the case would never have been solved, prosecutors said. Commander Wayne Carroll of the Plymouth Police Department said, quote, He was too short to reach the regular dumpster. If he had, the limbs would have gone to the landfill. At her sentencing in 2004, Sandra Anderson apologized to the court and to law enforcement officials. I lost track of why I was offering my services, she said. Sandra Anderson was sentenced to 21 months in prison and ordered to pay $14,000 in restitution as well as serve three years probation. Listeners, I cannot find any evidence of Azizel's release from prison, and he is no longer listed as an inmate of Michigan's prisons. It is my belief that he died while serving out his life sentence. If you know what became of him, please reach out and let me know. You can email me, host, at alreadygonepodcast.com, or catch me on social media, which you'll find links to in the show notes. I want to send a shout-out and a thank you to listener Garrett for suggesting this case. Even though I was living in the Detroit area at the time of this murder, I did not recall the case until he sent me a note recommending it for the podcast. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.